We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. Be not afraid of life. Believe that life is worth living and your belief will create the facts. That's a quote from the American philosopher and one of the founding fathers of American psychology, William James, who lived between 1842 and 1910. If he was alive today, I would be sending him emails and begging him to be a witness because one of the central questions of James's philosophy is the question behind this podcast, what makes life worth living? My witness today is Dr. John Carg, who is Professor of American Philosophy at the University of Massachusetts and author of two books, Six Souls, How William James Can Save Your Life, and Be Not Afraid of Life, in the words of William James. Now, you don't just claim that William James can save our lives, but he saved yours. Before we hear how, perhaps you can tell us more about James the Man. Andrew, thank you for having me on. I'm happy to do that. So William James was born in very choice circumstances for a boy of his time in the 1840s. He was born into one of the wealthiest families in New England, and that wealth allowed James and his brother, the famous novelist Henry James, to pursue any direction they chose, which might sound quite nice, but as many of your listeners probably have already experienced, with great choices comes great responsibility and sometimes great anxiety. And James experienced that deeply through his 20s and 30s, sort of a paralysis by analysis. And James sort of entered his 30s with the question, is life worth living? And he tended to say no at that point. He struggled with suicidal ideations, struggled with depression and anxiety, and in large part, his philosophy and psychology that he began in the 1880s and 1890s is really a response to that depression, the feeling of stuckness, the feeling of powerlessness that many of us experience today. So that gives us sort of like deep backstory, but then I can fill in the sort of intellectual history aspect of James as we move forward. So how did he save your soul then? So James has done it on several different occasions. I grew up in a fairly conservative central Pennsylvania home in the United States, and I entered my teens and 20s with a feeling of being completely powerless and stuck. And James described this very aptly as the philosophical position of determinism. Determinism being the sense that we are completely determined by our biological, cultural, and historical factors, and we can't actually make any progress in terms of using our will. And James fought back against determinism with fury in his philosophy known as American pragmatism. And so I read James's essay, Is Life Worth Living?, when I was 21, I was going through a period of depression. I attempted suicide, did not succeed. And I read James's essay immediately following that attempt. And it really pushed me to think about what is the meaning of life. And James, James's answer is life worth living to the question is life worth living is not straightforward. He says, instead of a straight yes or a pessimistic no, James says, maybe it depends on the liver. And when I first read James in my teens, I thought that this was a complete cop-out. But in my 20s and 30s, I think it's probably the best and most mature way of thinking about the question of life's efficacy. So that was how he saved your life when you were a teenager. He was also, I think you had another moment of uh, crisis when you were 30. You had twin setbacks. There was a divorce and your estranged father died as well. So did he help you at that particular crisis too? Absolutely. And James's philosophy 
as I read it in my 30s, after my first marriage disintegrated and uh, my father died of esophageal cancer, which is a long way of saying he drank far too much. Oh, dear. After those events, James's philosophy to me could be read as a game plan or a sort of blueprint for creating a life based on freedom and togetherness, which from my way of thinking is the way that marriages and relationships and life ought to be lived with a very close tether on those two poles. So freedom and togetherness and in future relationships. And in my life, I've tried to sort of put those two in play in ways that James has advocated for. And that's actually quite difficult because, you know, I'm a marital therapist, so I know all about this. And often you get one half of the relationship, normally the woman who's actually competing and saying, we need to have more togetherness. And the man who's normally saying, I need to have more freedom. So, How do you balance those two poles, according to James? And what have you discovered about balancing those two poles? So James is known for his individualism. In other words, a sort of Promethean exercising of the will. His most famous essay is probably The Will to Believe, in which he argues that his first act of freedom is to will himself to be free or to act as if he's free. And James is known in a sort of American setting as this great hero of American freedom and individual's, you know, spiritedness. But I think, and this would maybe speak to what you said about stereotypical heteronormative masculine pushing forward, I need to be more free. The other side of James, I think, is this sense that we must be aware that we are already connected to a wider social, political, spiritual order, that we are, we are in touch with our surroundings at all points and who we are as people. I would just like to give you a James quote that I pulled out of your book, which I think says this absolutely beautifully. We are like an island in the sea, separate on the surface, but connected in the deep. And that seems to speak to that very much, doesn't it? That's exactly it. And I think James wants to acknowledge both our desires for individuality, our desires for freedom and authenticity, uniqueness, our own personal genius. His intellectual grandfather, Ralph Waldo Emerson, would say, trust thyself, every heart vibrates to that iron string. But at the same time, to understand that we are connected and our growth and our individuality depends on our connections with others and our connections with community. So let's unpack the quote, be not afraid of life, believe that life is worth living and your belief will create the fact. So James's psychology is unique in the sense that it doesn't seem unique today, but in James' day it was, that the way that we act changes not only our emotional states, but the universe as we experience it. So if you think about, so at the end, he says, at the end of that quote, he says, act as if life is worth living and you will discover that this might actually be the case more often than not. It's it's, um, very similar to the position that we laugh, not because we are happy, but rather we are happy because we laugh. Our, you know, our actions dictate our emotional state or at least guide our emotional states. And I think James is onto something there, both with love, the way that we come to love one another in relationships, but also the way that we think about our moral lives and our spiritual lives. So that if we act as if we believe or we act as if we are committed, it actually makes us committed in a particular way. My mother, I, I stuttered a great deal when I was little. I, I was very shy. And my mom said, just fake it till you make it. In other words, act as if you have some confidence and it will instill the fact. So I think that that's one aspect of James's final comment in that essay lecture, Is Life Worth Living? What else is in that idea of uh, be not afraid of life? I mean... We go through so much of our lives afraid or angry 
and basically afraid of not living up to ourselves or the expectations that others place on us, afraid of what the world is or the way that we construct it in our mind. And James says, be not afraid of life. He says, get real. Okay. You can handle this. Every time you wake up or open your eyes, you have the chance to face life in a way that realizes opportunities and realizes the chances that life affords and the universe affords. Now, this might seem so esoteric that it doesn't make sense, but I think this is the key. When he says, is life worth living? Maybe it depends on the liver. He's saying it's up to you to make life worth living. You always have that chance. Now, he's not saying that it's guaranteed to you, but rather the chances right, are up to you. If you think about maybes like as being simply the hypotheticals of life, this is where meaning is made. I ask my students, I say, hey, where, where do you have the most meaningful moments of life? And they say, playing music, falling in love, being in a relationship, playing soccer or football, as you would have it. And I say, why are those experiences meaningful to you? And almost invariably, they say, it's because we don't know how it's going to go from the outset. There's a sort of variability, a chance, my chance to exert myself or to find myself in a moment and to shape it. And I think that that's uh, for me, that w- that's a very beautiful thought when it comes to James's maybe, maybe life is worth living because we have to look out for the maybes and be careful when, you know, situations seem determined beforehand to seem lockstep because that's where I think meaning runs aground for humans like us. I think that was James's position as well. And in a sense, our life flourishes in the maybes and our whole life is about negotiating a way through the maybes, whereas we sort of want life to be full of certainties. Exactly. And what's odd about that is we want the certainty and stabilities of life because oftentimes we're scared. And we think that the stability or security is going to quell our fears, right? And James says, be not afraid of life, which he's also saying, don't depend on the stability that you think that you have or you think that you need. You can negotiate the maybes and opportunities of life much more fluidly than we oftentimes do. Now, I think that in terms of relationships, that presents a very interesting question, which is how fluid and how variable are relationships to be for given people and where do they find meaning? So security and trust, I think, are incredibly important in life and relationships, but so too is variability and novelty. So those are the tensions that I think James is interested in exploring, not only in terms of the relationships that we form in life, but in our relationship to the universe at large. And actually saying maybe rather than no to our partner, to life, is um, a far more creative sort of kind of thing to say. That's exactly right, Andrew. I think what's especially interesting is that James doesn't give us either of the two binary ways of answering that question. He doesn't say, no, life is not worth living, or yes, 100% all the time, life is always, or my partner is always there. There's a type of variability in the maybe that I think James wants to offer us as the fertile ground of making meaning. And perhaps both of those answers, the lockstep yes or the lockstep no, aren't sufficient. Because nobody wants to just have a blank yes. They want a hell yes sort of kind of thing. And they want you to be really there rather than sort of putting up with the fact that you want to see this movie. And, you know, do you want to see this movie? Maybe it's possibly a better answer because then you can actually discuss together whether you're going to see the movie rather than just giving in or saying no way. That's right. I mean, I'm thinking a little bit about this and I've been married. I've been married three times or I'm currently married to my third and final wife. And my first marriage was sort of lockstep. Your lockstep or her lockstep? Both, both. I mean, we really 
just fell into a groove and it became quite stultifying and, and eventually it ended because of that, I think, in some part. And then my second marriage, I think, aired in the completely opposite direction, which was, it was just completely out of control. I mean, my second wife ended up having an affair with a longstanding affair with a transgendered man and announced it to me one night and asked for polyamory suddenly. And the, 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 uh, which I didn't think that's what polyamory meant. And, and it just ended. It blew up on that basis. And my third and final wife and I have this sort of balance between these two extremes, which I think works very well for us. So there's deep trust and a deep commitment, but at the same time, a sort of flexibility that we have because of that trust. In other words, the ability to bend with a partner and the ability to bend with life also entails a certain trust or hope, I think. And the other thing I think is sort of really at the center of be not afraid of life is the idea that we should look more clearly and completely. Then you can see, and this is a, a James idea that you can perhaps unpack for us, that we need to know what to look over and where to pay absolute attention, which seems to me to be the most modern problem, but uh, they were still having the same problem back in Henry James's day. Sorry, not Henry James's day, William James's day. Yeah, he says true wisdom comes in knowing what to overlook. That seems very right to me. I think James is suggesting that this is a hard thought, but for at least for me, maybe for some of our modern listeners as well, that what seems most immediate and most urgent is oftentimes not the most important things in life. And that the confusion about what is immediate and what is actually important causes us to stray in our actions and in our decisions many times. It's also the case that James believes that we allow the scripts and habits of life, which sometimes are important to create some sense of stability, but James thinks that we oftentimes allow the habits of life to dominate us and that if we realize that those habits are only in place or should only be in place as helpful shortcuts or heuristics that allow our life to go more fluidly, but never something to commit ourselves to blindly. And James thinks that oftentimes in our modern day work life or in our modern day domestic life, we allow ourselves to be frittered away by those habits. And he says, overlook those things sometimes in order to see what actually matters to you, where you actually feel feel like you're exercising your will in efficacious ways or, you know, in ways that, ma- you know, matter to you or your partner or your community. I'll say one last thing that James says in a essay called On a Certain Blindness in Human Beings. James says that we have a sort of innate self-centeredness which makes it very difficult to see the inner lives of others as vibrantly as we experience our own lives. Oh, that's so true. It's very difficult for me to look at someone different from me, like a loved one, for example, and understand that they are making meaning in ways that they find meaningful and zestful, even if I can't understand it. And I think that's an insight that has helped me many times, both in raising kids and also in dealing in relationships and friendships. And one of the problems of modern life is we feel that if we're going to have a successful relationship, I have to see the world in exactly the same way that you need to see the world, and then then it's going to be fine. But if there's a conflict, then the two of us can't actually live together. Right. And James is suggesting that that perfect identification is not only unrealistic, but also unhealthy. So he says that the particularity of individuals matters, not just in the sense that it keeps our relationships vibrant or diverse or interesting, but because that's the way the universe is. When you look at persons, they are perfectly unique. And part of the beauty I'm thinking about Thomas Merton. Merton says that love is not a package. It's not an exchange. 
but rather it's a type of message from one individual, perfectly unique individual to another about what their innermost self is. And it's not the request to change the other person, right? It's not the request to be changed by the other person. Uh, I think James would agree with that. How does it fit together for him being a philosopher and being a psychologist? Because it's an unusual combination. I mean, it's very appealing to me because, you know, I, I come from the psychology part of it. But how did these two parts feed into him? During the 1890s, during the end of the 19th century, these disciplines actually weren't divided at all, which is curious. I mean, at Harvard in the 1890s, the philosophy department was the home of the first psychology laboratory in the United States, founded by James and Josiah Royce and Herbert Munsterberger and a number of philosopher-turned-psychologists. And James, I think, regarded psychology and philosophy as having very similar objectives, ultimate objectives, which is to understand ourselves, the sort of ancient Socratic maxim, know thyself, or Delphic maxim, know thyself. That's similar for James, both in psychology and philosophy. The sort of emphasis might be slightly different, psychology taking a more objective view of human cognition and the human body and anatomy. When I say objective, what I mean is as an object, not objective like absolute. Whereas philosophy is a bit more broad in its approach. But I think that the objectives for James were the same. And I'm sort of sitting here thinking that maybe my discipline, which is the psychology end of it, is actually much poorer because we've lost the uh, philosophy end. It's become very much, you know, how do you make somebody less depressed, you know, give them this medication, pull this lever in a sort of cognitive behavioral therapy kind of way, and doesn't actually look at the underlying philosophy that's actually in somebody's head. And this is something else I was thinking very much as I was preparing this program. Us sort of non-philosophy people think philosophy doesn't have anything to do with us. We don't actually have a philosophy. But actually, if you don't have a philosophy, or at least you think you don't have a philosophy, you have unwittingly taken on somebody else's philosophy. And if you don't know what that philosophy is, it could quite easily be sabotaging you. Does this yeah, make any sense? It does. I mean, there's this place in David Foster Wallace's Kenyan commencement address called This is Water, where DFW says, everyone worships. In the trenches of life, everybody worships. It just depends on what you worship. Okay. And our default is to worship the machine of fame and power and money and insecurity and fear. And if we don't have a conscious sense of what we're worshiping, we're probably worshiping something already. We just don't know it. And I think that that strikes, I mean, comes very close to your position, which is I take to be that we all have a philosophy. Right. Some of us have a more conscious or self-reflective philosophy than others, but everybody is living out their thoughts. Okay. And living out their ideas and beliefs. But oftentimes those ideas and beliefs aren't actually investigated to see if you actually believe these things and why you believe these things. Now, you might have belief, but do you have what philosophers might call justified true belief? In other words, do you have good reasons? And I think that one of the points of teaching for me is to get my students to think through what their philosophy actually is. I don't want them to become a Kantian or a Hegelian or a Platonist. That's not the point of philosophy. Philosophy as I teach it is think about your beliefs, your most cherished, your most deeply held beliefs, and actually scrutinize them. See if you see if they hold up under both logical investigation, but also against experience. Like, do your thoughts and do your beliefs allow you to live a more flourishing life? Or do your thoughts and beliefs lead you to live a more stultifying one? One where you actually question the meaning of life. One last thought about the, a really astute comment that I thought you made, which was, we oftentimes think that philosophy has nothing to do with the business of living. And has nothing to do with psychology where you like sort of pull the chemical strings and then make someone feel better just by virtue of, you know, adjusting their anatomy. 
my mom was an existential psychotherapist and she was a great fan of Irving Yalom and also Viktor Frankl. And when I was going through a hard time when I was 12, she gave me Man's Search for Meaning, which is Frankl's account of being in the concentration camp and trying to find meaning there and being able to, lo and behold. And that approach to psychotherapy and to a mixture of psychology and philosophy has stuck with me. And I think resonates deeply with what William James is up to today. And I would very much like to see that sort of, you know, return to the discipline of psychology. I'm thinking about Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score. And I think Bessel, a fan of James and Paul Genet, does something like that. And that's something that I was really impressed by when I read that book. And somehow having your thoughts sort of reconfirmed or lifted up and expanded by somebody who has spent a lifetime thinking and has gone into things very deeply sort of helps you feel you're in the right path and gives you courage to go on, I would say, as well. I think that's right. I also think that philosophy, whether you like it or not, okay, when you watch yourself decay or when you watch your loved one decay, you're going to have philosophical questions. Has my life been good? What is the nature of God? What's the nature of the afterlife? What's the nature of this life? And what philosophy gives us, I think, is a sense that we're not alone in asking these questions. And I oftentimes think about who I've been drawn to in the canon of Western philosophy. And it's oftentimes men and women who have suffered in at least orthogonal or similar ways as I have. And it feels like I have a companion, at least in the misery of life, which is some solace, I think, uh, companions in misery. Because another one of your companions is Nietzsche. You went hiking with Nietzsche, well, not actually with Nietzsche, but uh, with his spirit, so to speak, because obviously you're not old enough to have been around for Nietzsche to meet him in the flesh. That's right. I mean, I, I made two journeys with Nietzsche, one when I was 19, and a professor gave me the money to go to Sils Maria and, and live in the Nietzsche house, which is now a museum, for nine weeks. And I went hiking with Nietzsche, and I investigated what you know Nietzschean freedom might mean for a 19-year-old. And then I went again when I was 37 with my family, and I discovered that Nietzsche, who is usually regarded as the most juvenile of philosophers and someone who you're supposed to get over in your teenage years, the sort of will to power, is actually quite helpful in holding off the complacency when you begin to crest the front edge of middle age. And the book's really about Nietzsche's philosophy as a way to help you through as you combat the complacency of modern life and the complacency of modern relationships, for that matter. And has having children impacted the way that you interact with philosophy? Absolutely. Philosophy is not the be-all and end-all of life, which I once thought it was. And the affirmation of life is not going to be made necessarily in your frontal cortex, but rather in actions and in the way that you live out your ideas and also the way that you respond in very kind of, I don't know, uh, brainstem ways. <laughs> and it, life has become much more practical for me since I've had children. A friend once said to me, she said, existential crisis is a luxury for those who don't have on-the-ground responsibilities. And <laughs> I have come to think that she is 100% right. And that is what Becca and Henry have taught me. So we have two children, a 10-year-old and a 5-year-old. And they, they, it basically means that I don't have the luxury to have my own existential breakdown. Okay, I am so busy worrying about it being a good parent that I don't necessarily have the time to really navel gaze in unproductive ways. Sometimes navel gazing is required for reflective action. But, you know, in my teenage years and in my 20s, I definitely indulged more than I do today. And with your father abandoning you when you were very small, did having small children yourself 
bring a bit of an existential crisis for you? It did with my first child, Becca. When Becca was born, I was worried that I'd become my father, that I wouldn't be able to shoulder the responsibilities of being a parent, that I would run away. But when Becca's mother left, it was a struggle, but I didn't run away. And it gave me a great amount of confidence that I was not at all like my father. And that then has carried through into my relationship with Henry, my second child. So yeah, uh, it, it did create an existential crisis initially. And was there a philosopher that helped you at that point? Yeah. So strangely, a childless philosopher by the name of Albert Camus. Oh, I know Camus. We had to do one of his plays at school, Caligula, which I don't think would help you at all with uh, those problems, but I do know all about Camus. So tell me how he helped. Caligula would not help. No. So at first I thought Camus would help because he has this uh, book called The Myth of Sisyphus, which is not unlike parenting. You push boulders up hills and then they roll down again and again and again. And at the end of the book, you're supposed to imagine Sisyphus as happy. And that seems like a very nice metaphor for what, what happens when you're parenting a toddler and then parenting two children. And my wife, Kathleen, and I feel like Sisyphus sometimes. But actually, what I think is that the book called The Plague helped me a great deal more. And The Plague, in a nutshell, is about obviously suffering through a quarantine city, going through the plague, but then finding ways to be compassionate and level-headed and sticking it out in really meaningful simple acts of self-sacrifice. The main character, who's a doctor, stays, just stays, there's an expression from American football, stays in the pocket, which means the, the whole field can be going crazy and you just stay in the pocket and you just settle down and think about what you can do to help in small ways. And I think Ryu in The Plague does this. The doctor does that. The physician does this. And there's one character from this play that I think is particularly helpful to me, which is a character by the name of Rambert. And Rambert dreams of escape all the time, uh, escaping the city of the plague. And he's very unhappy for most of his life where he's dreaming of escape. And it's only when he gives up on escape and actually starts investing in the people around him that Rambert finds meaning and finds a life worth living. And I think that that's a sort of Jamesian moment of, oh, I can still make a difference in my small little ways, and I need to give up these grand hopes and just notice what's going on around me. And I think for parenting, that's been particularly important to me, because as parents, I think we're apt to give ourselves over to both grand hopes and grand fears. But if we can just notice what's going on around us, it seems much more manageable and also much more um, meaningful. We'll have more in a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Guess how long I've been helping couples have more fulfilling relationships? The answer shocked me. 39 years. Over this time, I've developed all sorts of interventions to help couples communicate better and make meaningful changes to protect and nurture their love. Some ideas I've used for a while and dropped, but at the core, there are a handful of must-haves that I use with all the couples I see face-to-face. Sadly, I can't work with everyone who wants my help, but I can share my best relationship tools. I've put them in a new course with worksheets and links to my most helpful podcasts. There are four hours of instructions to do at your pace together, with your partner or on your own. And it normally retails at £150, 
but to launch, I've dropped them to a special introductory price of £99.50. If you'd like to find out more, go to andrewgmarshall.com forward slash tools and get started on improving your relationship. So one of the ways that you can participate in The Meaningful Life is by writing in with a dilemma that I will put to one of my witnesses. If you'd like to do that, go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find out how you can sign up for my newsletter, which has got all sorts of uh, interesting, useful articles in it. It comes every two weeks. And you'll also find there a form that says get involved with the podcast. And this is a letter that somebody has written to us. It's a woman. I think my husband has anger and inferiority problems, but he does not want to admit and get help. He gets angry about everything, no matter how small it is. He yells and doesn't talk respectfully. He doesn't approve of any idea or suggestion coming from me saying I'm controlling him and do not make him feel like a man. He will never apologize for his actions. He only becomes defensive and angry and never apologizes. He is always right. I always make him angry. He's not appreciative of anything I do or say. How can I change things between us, or do I have to accept that our marriage is dead? So, I think we could say this is a philosophical conundrum, isn't it? Yes, I would say that. How much control do we have of other people? Well, when I listen to that letter, it's interesting. At the end, the writer says, how can I change things between us? And I think that's a crucial moment in the letter. And it seems like whether a relationship lives or dies turns on the question of whether both parties are willing and able to change a dynamic that has been established between them. And the attempt to change one another I've almost always seen run aground. Me too. So that being said, another thing strikes me from the letter. It would be interesting to know what his letter would be, right? And we could put them next to each other and maybe get a fuller picture. Well, I've had many clients where we have this, and I know the answer will be, my wife is critical all the time. There's nothing I can do that will make her happy. I mean, he, they may not say this, but effectively, they've given up trying to make them happy and they just go their own sweet way, which, of course, is what makes this so incredibly stuck. Right. I mean, the stuckness is also difficult. I think it, it, the stuckness is even harder to wrest the couple from because the issue is inferior. And like the feeling of being unloved and being inferior and being not able to succeed and not being able to succeed in the relationship. Anger comes out of those feelings. And I'm just speaking from my own experience uh, that it's very difficult if you have a partner who wants to change you for you not to feel inferior slash to feel attacked. And that's the stickiness, I guess, of it. And how willing are you to change when somebody wants you to change and they've given you five points that you've got to change on? Yes. And I, I also think another thing that's at play for many heteronormative or heterosexual traditional relationships is that men do oftentimes feel entitled to particular feelings of power. And a strong woman or a strong partner can jeopardize that feeling. And it's difficult to get through that. I'm speaking only from my experience. It's difficult <laughs> to get around that. And very well-meaning partners can feel hurt if their well-meaning efforts at change or contribution are overlooked or are degraded. So it's difficult, I think. You know this far better than I do. You see folks like this all the time. So what philosopher is coming to mind for you at this precise moment? I think that not one philosopher is going to do the job. And I no, don't think but- it's William, I, and I don't think it's William James. No. What I do, what I do think 
is that what you have is something that Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist in the 1950s, describes as a sort of unhappy consciousness. And what Sartre means by this is that you have this, let's, let, we'll do, do a little bit more philosophy. This guy by the name of Hegel says that relationships fall into master-slave interactions. I think and we've that, got a master-slave interaction here. Yeah, I think so too. And the weird thing about master-slave is, is it's not really clear who's in control. <laughs> Okay, because the master depends on the slave to be the master, and the slave, well, he's master, he or she is mastered. Okay, but really, and this is the difficult thing about getting out of master-slave interactions, is because both identities have been formed on the basis of the other. Okay, and so there's a lot invested in the slave remaining the slave and the master remaining the master. And Sartre, in the 1950s, 150 years after Hegel, says that this generates what's known as the unhappy consciousness, or or rather that you end up with the unhappy consciousness, period. That's all you get out of these interactions. I think a solution to this type of situation is actually to get back to the sort of basic vulnerabilities which love is grounded in. What I mean by that is not that like love is not just fulfilling a need, but rather the realization that each of us as human beings has certain vulnerabilities and requires certain care, not requires, but calls for certain care. And this is, I think, very difficult, but creating a space of vulnerability for both parties where they can be open about how they're feeling, why they're feeling it, what's behind some of these feelings. So like, for example, is sex behind these feelings? Is, is money behind these feelings? Is a history of abuse behind these feelings? Like this type of vulnerability and this type of deep backstory might allow, you know, the master slave dynamic to be alleviated. I mean, that's just using philosophy. No, I but I think it's really interesting because it brings us a different way of looking at of it. I mean, my sort of uh, psychology kind of response is going to be the one person you can change is yourself. So you can't change your husband's behavior, but you can change the way that you react to him. So first and foremost, I would say, choose your battles. So actually, you're not fighting over the things that aren't important. See what happens if you let stuff go that is less important to you. By that way, have less anger yourself, because unfortunately he's coming at it with anger, you're coming at it with anger as well, or defensiveness. So if you can actually think about what can I do differently, that's going to be much more productive than what can he do differently. Often, unfortunately, the answer to what can I do differently is not care or leave, but there are other things that you can do differently. I mean, that's a very stoic way of approaching matters. Stoicism, basically, the ancient Stoics believed that you can adjust your mindset to the world, but you can do very little to adjust, you know, the world to your mindset. I think that there's something to that. I also think one of the deficiencies of Stoicism is that it does breed a certain resignation. In other words, a feeling that you can't change the world, but you must do some work on yourself. And and oftentimes Stoics feel like that's slightly unfair. Like, why do I have to change myself, right? If this situation is ostensibly and maybe even objectively repulsive or unacceptable. And I wonder from your, I'm going to ask you a question. At what mm. point would you say this is simply unacceptable? Well. The fact that she's asking the question, is my marriage dead? Should I accept this? I think it's always worth doing an experiment and, you know, give yourself something like six months and seeing if I focus on what I can change and what I can do differently, what is that going to be like? Because 
our temptation is just to cut and run. And unfortunately, cutting and running, what we learn from that is actually what was wrong with that relationship was I was there with the wrong man. And if we don't learn the lessons ourselves, we often end up in the same relationship again, but just with a different person or the same relationship, but actually we're paying the stubborn, stuck person and our partner's saying, please change. So it's worth experimenting, giving yourself a a certain amount of time to see what can I do differently? You know, what can I learn from this rather than rushing blindly into the future? I mean, to me, if I was going to be 100% honest, I think this marriage is dead. But the fact that she's writing to me asking, is this marriage dead, suggests that for her, there is something still there. And I think it's worth trying to investigate how she could change because actually there's nothing she can do to change him because actually she's done that to the point that he's actually refusing to budge. Right. I, I mean, I think that I'm not sure if philosophy has something to say about this, but personal experience might. I mean, oftentimes what is being argued about is not necessarily where the pain actually is. And trying to figure that out is difficult, but probably necessary. And it might lead to some very uncomfortable conversations, but it, I think it's worth having those conversations. I think what you say is very, very on target when it comes to just simply leaving just replicates a similar dynamic. I can tell you that for sure. And um, I think being left can have the power to make you wonder who am I and why, you know, how, how could I do better? And that's where, you know, that's one of the reasons. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and that is where the juice is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, um, what I do know about the current relationship I am in now is, is that we are committed to that question of what can I do? But it really requires both people to do it in some cases. Yep. As I say, I'm not incredibly hopeful, but I am hopeful for you because you're asking these questions. And I would like you to be the person that leaves with learning rather than the person that just walks away because um, it's actually a much better position to leave having learned. And probably you're going to learn more at this moment when things are reasonably calm than uh, when the two of you have actually gone to fighting with lawyers and and it's getting really nasty, then you just learn that you hate the person's guts, which might be very true, but uh, isn't going to help you very much in the long term. But, you know, you have 100% of our condolences because it sounds like hell, to be perfectly honest. So, we've basically being running out of time. So I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? Mm. I'll fall back on James. It's the maybes of life. And those things, those things don't have to be other people, but in my case, they are other people. So people are boundlessly, it can be boundlessly interesting and full of maybes. And my wife, Kathleen, is definitely one of the reasons one of the primary reasons why life is worth living, my kids being the second, you know, second and third, not in that order. And um, then teaching a close behind. So my interactions with people make my life worth living, which seems like a boring, it seems sort of like no duh. But the way that I think about those relationships has changed remarkably over the years. And it's not about having them having the relationships, like owning the relationships, but experiencing the relationship in a particular way through the maybes and realizing the variability of life. And I mean, I went through cardiac arrest and um, bypass surgery when I was 40. Wow. And Kathleen was with me at the time. And for the first time in my life, I had often, I had often thought that to be loved, I had to do something. I had to be a certain way. I had to perform certain actions. 
And for the first time in my life, I could do absolutely nothing, right? And it turns out that she still loved me. And it was the first time that I actually didn't feel like I had to, you know, stand up and perform in order, in order to garner affection. And it gave me a clue. It was one of the most meaningful moments of my life, which was I don't have to work so hard at this, right? I don't have to slave because oftentimes the things that we think are required of us in order to be loved and in order to be a friend are those things that make it most unbearable to love us and to care for us, namely this sort of anxieties about ourselves and the neurotic practices that we have that we think are accomplishing something. So, I, I mean, what makes my life meaningful is to love and to be loved, but to figure out how to do that is always a trick and always involves being attuned to the maybes of life. So, yeah. Well, what a beautiful answer. And unfortunately, that's where the conversation has to end, unless you're a supporter of The Meaningful Life, because we're going to be talking about belief. In fact, it was where I discovered uh, William James because he has this idea that you don't have to swallow all the beliefs that have been handed down to you from the different generations, but you can't just believe anything you want. So there's sort of kind of tension I found incredibly interesting. And we're going to be talking about when is it justified to believe in the bonus material today for this edition of The Meaningful Life. And if you want to hear the bonus material, you have to subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and get access to the bonus material that way, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.